0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast. Today we present a special episode we're calling JPM Highlights, where we dive deep into the data being presented by top biotech companies at the illustrious JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. This once-yearly conference is the epicenter for biotech deal-making and groundbreaking data releases. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host Joe Varielli. Our guests on today's panel are Amy Grover and Alejandro Dorenbaum. Amy is Senior Director of Patient Advocacy at Catalyst Pharmaceuticals, a commercial stage rare disease drug development company with an approved product for the treatment of Lambert-Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome, or LEMS. Amy works to ensure that the patient voice is heard and well represented. She's a seasoned patient advocate, having served as Director of Operations and Senior Manager of Patient Engagement at Global Genes a rare disease patient advocacy organization that supports the 7,000-plus rare diseases. Amy led multiple efforts during her tenure at Global Genes, including patient meetups and education, advocacy outreach, communications activities, and overall operations and financial management. Before joining Global Genes, she worked in both the commercial and healthcare insurance industries. Alejandro is the chief medical officer of Reneo Pharmaceuticals, a clinical-stage company developing drugs for rare mitochondrial disorders. Their lead candidate, REN001, is currently being investigated in the treatment of primary mitochondrial myopathies and long-chain fatty acid oxidation disorders. Alejandro is a seasoned biotech executive, having served as chief medical officer at Alkalos and Lumina Pharmaceuticals, which was acquired by Shire. Prior to those roles, he held senior positions at Genentech and Biomarin. Alex received his MD from the National Autonomous University in Mexico City. He then completed his residency in pediatrics at the University of Texas Health Science Center and held a fellowship in allergy and immunology at Baylor College of Medicine. He maintains an active academic position as clinical professor in pediatrics at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he specializes in allergy and immunology. Thank you both for joining me today.
1: Thank yeah, you for having here. me
0: so for each of you, I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourselves and your company.
1: Um, yes, my name is Amy Grover. I'm the Senior Director of Patient Advoc- Advocacy at Catalyst Pharmaceuticals. And at Catalyst, um, we are a commercial stage bio, um, pharmaceutical company. Um, creating and developing and commercializing medicines um, for rare diseases. And as we know, there are about 7,000 plus rare diseases um, that we know of. We currently have a treatment for Lambert-Eaton myasthenic Syndrome, otherwise known as LEMS. And um, from what we know, there's approximately 3,000 LEMS patients in the United States, making it an ultra rare disease. Um, and yes, we did participate in JP Morgan last week. Um, and we are further, ev- further venturing into the epilepsy space. Uh, so that is a um, massive community. We're looking forward to getting in, you know, into this space and, um, and really partnering, um, with the epilepsy community.
2: So I'm I'm Alex Dorenbaum. I'm the chief medical officer at Reneo. Re, Reneo is also a company that is developing a, a drug, Mevodelpar, for the treatment of patients with primary mitochondrial myopathies, and this drug is also being developed in patients with uh, fatty acid oxidation disorders. These are two orphan diseases in a different scale uh, than what Amy is is reporting. Primary mitochondrial myopathy is actually even though it's a rare disease, it's one of the more common rare diseases with uh, tens of thousands of patients rather than, uh, that, that, than smaller numbers. Um, the principle of RENEO is a very interesting one. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's one that has been successful in other uh, the indications. What, what we did at RENEO is we looked at drugs that are available, that were developed for larger indications by big pharma. So there is quite a bit of experience with those drugs. Most of those drugs have gone through phase one and they have a, a large package of information. The drug is well understood and the mechanism of action of the drug is well understood. And for reasons that are other than biological, uh, mainly business reasons, uh, companies may abandon the development of these drugs because they just don't make economic sense for them to develop them. And then we uh, at Reneo, we look at those drugs, we we study the mechanism of action of those drugs, and we see if they can be adapted uh, to treat a rare or difficult to treat disease that big pharma would otherwise not consider uh, treating. And so the advantage of this is that we understand the mechanism of action of the drug. We have preliminary data on the drug. and and that accelerates the timeline and the uh, access to a potential therapy for for a rare disease. Potentially, this this drug could be used not in one, but multiple uh, diseases based on the mechanism of action of the drug, so we're very excited. We are currently doing our pivotal trial. We are more than 90% enrolled in the trial for primary mitochondrial myopathy, So, so we will have a readout this year, at the end of the year, on our pivotal trial and once the results are available if, if successful we would quickly move into a regulatory submission so you can imagine that this year at jp morgan we were uh, very busy <laughs> because uh, you don't often have companies that are already in phase three that are developing a drug for for a rare disease and that have many options to move forward um, JP Morgan was a very uh, unusual meeting, I think, this year. In that uh, we're coming out of the the, the COVID pandemic, and uh, we've all been cooped up in our houses, and and we haven't had face to face meetings. So, so uh, I think that people were very excited to be able to meet in person. People were very excited to be able to to again start uh, having those interactions that that we're so familiar with. And also the environment in in which JP Morgan occurred was a very unique one because uh, coming out of the pandemic, I think the the biotech market has been uh, very flaky at best, if I I should say. And um, there are hundreds of companies that are trading below even the cash that they have in their pockets. So that's creating an environment where uh, the, the the companies that may be interested in funding biotech are having a lot of you know difficulty choosing where to put their money, where to park their money, because there are way too many options out there. So uh, so I think that the, the the discussions have been very interesting. The the type of of meetings that we had were. Uh, uh, were very interesting, and and, uh, I think that there is a lot of opportunity uh, coming out of this pandemic, and hopefully companies that have good ideas will be well-funded to execute on those ideas. I think that one of the difficulties of this pandemic was that very good ideas might not have been developed because the money was not there to, to develop those ideas, and that's very regrettable because any good idea that isn't developed means... Patients will not benefit from that, from that, from that technology.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important point that despite a general downturn in the biotech markets that we saw last year, there's a lot of optimism around the science. Uh, And if the science is great, then the money will flow in. Uh, One other thing that uh, I noted that you had mentioned was that uh, on the spectrum of rare diseases, the indications that you're going after in clinical trials at Reneo are more common than some of the other, uh, as Amy mentioned, 7,000 plus rare diseases now that we know of. So I think this makes an interesting contrast in that that rare disease is not uh, one umbrella necessarily that we should think of as, as a basket, but there's a lot of heterogeneity within what we would consider rare diseases. And given that uh, rare diseases are not alike, I'm guessing that recruiting for clinical trials, and Amy in the case of Catalyst within approved therapy, um, recruiting individuals and and patients uh, that would benefit from this drug um, may be difficult. Can you talk about from the standpoint of ultra-rare disease versus a rare disease that's maybe a bit more common Um, What what is it like uh, recruiting individuals um, who have these conditions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you a little bit more um, background on myself, prior to me coming to Catalyst Pharmaceuticals, I was with an umbrella organization advocating for all 7,000 rare diseases for 10 years. And part of my role at that organization was to speak to patient, patient organizations, um, caregivers, essentially all day long and um, guiding them, understanding their journey, um, leading them to resources, connecting them to other patients. So what you're saying is that, yes, even though the the diseases are different, the symptoms are different, um, we're talking pediatric diseases as well as adult onset diseases, um, their challenges are very similar, and their their fight for treatments, and, and I like to hear Um, biotech community and the pharmaceutical companies are out there looking for opportunities because as we know, you know, five, only 5% of rare diseases have a treatment. And when you're talking one in 10 Americans, 35 million, there's a lot of people out there that are searching for, um, for treatments. So when it comes to recruiting, yes, it's extremely challenging. Um, You really do have to make those connections with the patient groups um, with the key leaders um, of these disease groups. And, um, you know, you have to go out there. You can't expect them to come to you. You have to go to them. You have to find out where these patients are, where they live. You have to understand um, their um, biases. You have to understand their hesitancies um, and really understand the the um, journey of the patients in each community. So they're going to have their nuances. They're going to have um things that are similar, but then you have to understand the community as a whole and you have to understand the history of those communities and um and and respect those histories, right? So you have to be able to go to him, you have to have those them and have those open and honest communication. Um, frankly, I, I believe that it's just it it just doesn't work. You can't expect them to say, hey, look at us, we're here, come to us. It has to be an open dialogue between patients and patient community and industry, um, and, uh, in, in a very respectful dialogue. And I think the most important thing is really just to try to open your door and to, to be willing to walk their walk and go, and go to them, I guess, in a nutshell.
2: But, you know, it doesn't start at recruitment. The complexity starts much earlier than that. The, the, the one of the difficulties in developing drugs for rare diseases is that rare diseases are rare and we don't understand them as well as, for example, diabetes or hypertension. You know, you you have the Framingham study and you follow thousands of patients for dozens of years and you really understand, you know, cardiovascular disease extremely well or Uh, The the, the registries that exist for breast cancer or for other, you know, large indications really give you a very good idea of of what the disease is like and and how does it behave? What is the natural history of the of the disease in rare diseases that may not always be the case? And uh, just understanding, you know, what is the disease progression in patients and will a six month trial capture changes or do you need a longer trial? That may not be an easy question to answer. The endpoints are also not well defined for rare diseases. So, 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 eh, eh, trying to find the right endpoint to study in a disease that doesn't occur frequently or that is heterogeneous in nature may be be very complicated. So so this this relationship that that Amy is talking about between industry and advocates and uh, 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 groups of patients that get together and and talk about the disease is essential. For example, we, we, we conducted a survey among patients with PMM to try to understand some of their symptoms and how these symptoms impact their lives. And we would have not been able to do that had we not worked with the organization that, that brings together all these families and, and, and that talk about the disease. That to me is essential. And the third, you know, the third leg of the stool here is the regulatory agencies. You, you have to be able to agree with the regulatory agencies on what is going to be your development program. And sometimes advocates, uh, patients, families that have the disease can help you shape the thinking of the regulatory agencies on what is important to the patient and what should be addressed in the patient. So, So that relationship is essential. And if you don't Start with that. Uh, uh, you're likely to make mistakes, and you're likely not to develop the drug in the right in the right way. So, so to me, that's essential. That having a good relationship with with patients, patient advocate groups, organizations that deal with these difficult to treat diseases, and the regulatory agencies. Amy, you. Yeah, you ab- only-
1: ab- I was going to say absolutely. You're spot on. That I believe that you can't get involved you know it's not too soon to get involved with patient organizations and you have to understand what is important to them you can't look at a list of symptoms and truly understand what's important to them and what is going to improve their life their quality of life and and in sometimes and i've seen it before that uh sometimes those endpoints are way off and you've got to pull back and understand you know, what is important to you as a rare disease patient and what is the most important thing to get you to the quality of life you are looking for. And you can't do that unless you have a, a pretty deep relationship with that patient community and those
0: patients. Yeah, of course.
2: On I- the other hand, what industry does can be extremely important. I mean, if if, if you think of the probably the gold standard for relationship between industry and, and disease associations is in cystic fibrosis. And uh, as you know, the cystic fibrosis registry was originally created by the pharmaceutical company that was developing Pul- Pul- Pulmozyme. And uh, they, they started that registry and they started learning about the disease in ways that academia had never been able to do before. And after you know, I think it was about about ten years after the the registry of the CF registry had been created, it was handed over to the to, to the to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, but it was managed by by the by by industry for many many years beforehand, and everything that we know that really well about about, about CF came from that industry created a registry. I think the same can be said for asthma or for many other diseases where registries have been created by industry and have enabled us to really understand the long-term disease progression eh, 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 with more accuracy. In our own case, we're, we're developing a drug for, our drug, Mevodelpar, is being developed for fatty acid oxidation defects. And the interesting thing about these diseases is that they manifest you know, they early in life but the disease changes with time. So, so for example, children with, with fatty acid oxidation at birth, they tend to have metabolic crisis, but as they grow older, those metabolic crises clear and they start having more a picture of myopathy of a metabolic myopathy. And understanding the adults is not, you know, there aren't that many publications that talk about what are the manifestations of the disease of, of fatty acid oxidation in adults, we actually had to do a survey to understand adults because we're treating adults with the disease. And uh, uh, when we talked to the experts, I mean, each or one of them had their own personal experience with the adults they were following, but there, were, there wasn't really a broad understanding or information available to be able to really know uh, what should we focus on in the adult population with fatty acid oxidation defects.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that I'm hearing uh, almost the description of a feedback loop with industry and and basic science, uh, obviously involving patient advocacy groups here uh, in the rare disease space. Whereas, you know, for some broader indications, say maybe uh, some common form of cancer, you know, a a large clinical study that takes a few years, in that few years, you, you might have discovered something about the disease that would negate the effects of whatever drug you're trying to develop. But in rare diseases, it, it seems like you're so deeply tied into the basic science and biology of the disease that you're really driving forward the discovery in that case while you know maintaining um, clinical discovery.
2: Yeah. So, for example, one of the ideas that occurred to one of my uh, friends that is in academia is uh, what she's trying to do is she's trying to get all the companies that are working in primary mitochondrial myopathy to provide the information on the placebo arms of their trials. So so these would be individuals that participated in a clinical trial, but who did not receive an intervention. They received a placebo. And the idea would be to bring them all together, do a meta-analysis and see, okay, what does really happen to the placebo arm in patients who who are followed for at least 6 to 12 months in a clinical trial? It's not a perfect natural history study because there is a quote-unquote placebo effect, but but it gives you a very good idea of what the disease will behave like without intervention, uh, without the research intervention uh, that, that you're, you're studying, and 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 I think that that's a a great project. I mean, we we when when she proposed that, I immediately said that I would contribute with all our placebo patients into that that meta analysis. I think it's worthwhile doing it. But you mentioned basic science, and basic science is is very complicated, uh, you know, because you don't want to move into a clinical indication without having some form of of data that suggests that your drug may work in that indication. And the problem is that in rare diseases, animal models are not very reliable. I mean, even in the the diseases, you, you know, Take you know one of the diseases uh, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That is you know one of the most studied diseases in the rare in, in the rare environment. If you look at the animal models for for Duchenne, the mdx mouse model, for example, it's very imperfect. I mean, it, what I can tell you is this: if you don't have activity in the Duchenne mos- in in the mdx model, you probably will not be able to move forward a drug in 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 Duchenne, if you have stellar activity in, in the MDX model, it doesn't tell you anything about what you will do in humans. So so, so the problem is that the animal models are very limited. There are occasionally these disease models that are extraordinary. For example, I worked in, my, in the early years of my career at Biomarine, one of the, the, the companies that develop drugs for rare diseases, and we had a... Animal model uh, that was of all things a cat uh, model of of one of the mucopolysaccharidosis mucopolysaccharidosis, and that was a very reliable model. It worked really really well. But but generally speaking. Animal models are difficult to, to, to develop. I think things are changing because, you know, you, there are now humanized uh, uh, animal models that, that, that appear to be more reliable in many respects. So, so this is an area where I think uh, if, if this audience of PhDs should, should pay a lot of attention. I mean, the, the translational medicine is essential to be able to tackle rare diseases and, and, you know, It's still a very imperfect science.
1: Right. Right. And and Joe, you mentioned, you know, the differences between rare diseases in the rare disease community as opposed to broader indications. And I think something that people don't understand if they're not involved in the rare disease community, that you have patients and you have parents that are actively collecting data, raising funds and driving research. And sometimes that can be good because there is a lot of work to be done. But sometimes that, you know, isn't so great because you're dealing with timelines. You're dealing with parents that are desperate and they're looking for something now as opposed to wanting to wait, you know, for that long drug development process. I've even heard patients say, I don't want clean science. I want dirty science. Let me know if I'm right now, if I'm going down the wrong path and if i'm going down that wrong path i want to know now because i'm running out of time for my child and so you're you're dealing with those emotions and those those desperate those desperate feelings and i feel like you know <clears throat> you understand that when you're involved in this community but there's so many folks out there in you know the mainstream world that they don't understand what's going on you know with these patients and with these parents when it comes to drug development and and their urgency the urgency to get a treatment
2: You know, this year, I attended one of the mitochondrial uh, foundation meetings, and there was a session on participation in clinical trials. And I think the number one uh, issue that was brought up by the parents is, why do we need to do a one-year randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial? I don't want my child to be on a placebo for a full year. Can you get the answer quicker? Uh, and and sometimes the science allows that, but sometimes it doesn't. And so I think that another aspect of of, of this engagement with with the disease community is that uh, there needs to be some sort of uh, we need to spend time educating uh, ourselves, but also sharing with the patients what are the difficulties that we're facing and the reasons why we select. A, you know, six months or three months or 12 months for a clinical
1: trial. I agree with you. I feel like there needs to be more education with the rare disease community on the drug development process. Why does it have to happen this way? How long does it take? Um, because I do feel like there are some misunderstandings when it comes to that and, and understand it. it's a complex process. And uh, so I agree with you. I I feel like there does from some of these umbrella organizations, you know, developing that educational resource for the patient community from the start, from the get go, I think would help out on both sides.
0: I think that transparency is really important. And I think that's something that uh, the broader indications uh, drug development community can take from the rare disease community, because I think across the entire drug development spectrum, there there really needs to be more transparency and education for patients and and patient communities. One thing that you had talked about, Amy, was uh, the patient community's involvement in raising funds. And uh, I wanted to have a quick discussion about raising capital in general for rare diseases. Um, What is the involvement of the patient community in that process? And Alejandro, uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, raising capital in public markets. Uh, what's the value proposition for a rare disease drug um, versus something uh, with, with broader indication, where you know you could say we'll give this drug to a million people, right? And there's there's a clear value proposition, but but when the uh, group of of patients that that can receive this drug is smaller, um, how do you uh, Maintain value proposition.
1: Sure, absolutely. From the from the patient side of things, um, it runs the entire gamut when it comes to fundraising and raising funds. So it goes. And it depends on what is important to them. So you have the organizations that are solely focused on research, and that's what they're going to do. You have organizations that are focused on <clears throat> support tools and, and resources, and you know, just basically getting together and. Um, once they determine what their focus is, the smart ones who determine, you know, really what their their focus is, they raise funds from, you know, minimum amount of money needed just to, you know, have two events to bring patients together all the way up to millions of dollars that drives research. And, you know, you have the folks that are um, starting up, you know, um, um, nonprofits and they work their way to starting their own biotechs. Don't count them out. They're incredible, incredible force. Uh, to be reckoned with. When, when you know, there's there's uh, a will, there's a way. And so, I have seen patient organizations from crowd, you know, funding online through Facebook raise over a million dollars. Um, you know, they've done some incredible, unique, uh, I guess, uh, approaches to raising funds. Um, and uh, everything from partnering with, of course, you know, we support patient organizations. I, I, you know, obviously, um, but uh, they're they're pretty savvy the ones that are out there raising funds. And it goes from, you know, a few hundred to you know millions of dollars that they will raise for research. They've got partnerships um, with other organizations. They do um, everything from bake sales to bike rides to, um, you know, working with uh, organizations to be able to raise these funds. So it's, it's pretty incredible what they're doing out there and how resourceful and creative they are, but it it runs the entire gamut.
2: You know, I think we're moving, we're moving from wholesale medicine to precision medicine. So I envision that most diseases will become quote unquote orphan in the future. You, you know, uh, do you really need to treat all the hypertensive patients with Lisinopril? I mean, can you uh, uh, eventually we will wise up a little bit and we will know a little bit more about what patient benefits most from what therapy? both based on the disease process that this patient has and the inherent genetic characteristics of the individual so i think that that medicine is becoming more precision like and 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 diseases that y- you know we used to think of breast cancer as breast cancer now we know there is breast cancer where you have this receptor or that receptor or that other receptor and and based on what The biology of the tumor is your response may differ and you may benefit from other therapies so in diseases that were not considered orphan before the populations are getting smaller because we're identifying more precise biology so so i think that orphan companies companies that develop drugs for orphan diseases are just in the forefront of that precision that we will develop in in medicine and uh, how we fund that and how we figure out how to fund that type of medicine is going to be complicated in the future i think it's it's not going to be an easy process but 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 what i would say is this is that there are very good examples of uh, of companies that have developed orphan products that have done extremely well so there is a path forward uh, for this for companies that develop orphan diseases and, and I think that there is appetite for that as well. And, and what that means is that you're not going to treat one disease or one group of patients, but maybe you will treat five or six different groups of patients and uh, with a rare disease. And then that will create the critical mass that you need to develop your company. But But I think that there are several examples of very successful companies that started with one product like where I worked before, BioMarine, for example, and who have continued to grow uh, over time uh, really well. Now, there is a distinction between the money that is gathered by, for instance, a a orphan disease parent group to support research on that uh, disease and grants that are given to, 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 to researchers to try to understand better the biology of the disease so that we can move forward in the treatment of the disease. And there are a few examples where, where, where that occurred, that, that someone received a grant from a, from a foundation and, and and was able to, to, you know, find the the mechanism that can be addressed for the disease. But, but drug development is not a cheap process and it requires, you know, it requires quite a bit of money and, and uh, uh, re, whether you're doing a, a large indication or an orphan disease, you still have to understand, uh, you know, does the drug work in this population? Does it change uh, 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 the, the outcome of the patients? And the FDA focuses in, in three main parameters. You know, does the drug change how you feel, how you function, or how you survive? And uh, and, and And then is it safe? And, and to, able, to be able to, co- to, to demonstrate safety, you have to do a whole host of preclinical and uh, quality studies that uh, whether you're doing it for three, three patients or 300 patients or 3000 or 3 million, you still need to have purity in your drug. And, and, and that process is equally expensive, whether you're doing a small drug, for a small indication, or a big drug for a big indication. So, so that money has to be spent. I think that that it all depends on the science. And, 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 and you know, when you're raising money, I, I think that there are four, three or four different aspects that you have to focus on, you know. The first question that you need to answer when you're raising money is, does it make sense i mean is is the science solid here is, is 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 does does this drug do what it's supposed to do and if it does it will it help these patients so so the first question you ask is about the biology and the science and how solid that science is and i think part of the problem that we have in in our industry is that drugs often come very quickly into the industry without having had that full detailed preclinical research. And especially when drugs come from academia, eh, eh, sometimes they they transition too quickly from academia into industry, and we don't understand the drug as well. That's why Reneo actually did what we did before uh, that I explained of going for a drug that had already been developed for another indication. So, So you want a lot of preclinical data and good research data that allows you to understand the drug so that you can Tell the investors, look, this is what the drug is. This is what it does. This is how we envision that it will help these patients. And this is what we expect to see. That's number one. Without the science, you cannot move forward. Then you have to have a plausible plan. You have to be able to say, you know, these are the studies I plan to do. And this is how I plan to develop the drug. And then you need to be able to show that what you're doing is going to have um, regulatory resonance, you know, uh, at the end of the day, in industry, we want to treat the patients, but we have to convince the regulatory agencies that the drug works. So, so we have different, different, there are different pressures there and uh, you need to design your program in a way that a regulatory agency like the FDA or in the UK MHRA or in Europe, EMA will accept. the 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 evidence you will provide uh, as evidence of efficacy or safety and then you also need to show that the team that is going to execute on this program is a team you can trust you know because uh, the vcs are going to give you a lot of money to do your program and they want to know you're not going to run with the money and not do anything proper with it so so i think that credibility and a track record and and, and, and seriousness are, are, are very important as well. So, so I think those are the, the elements of, of, of a pitch. You know, when you're trying to pitch to a, to a venture capital firm to give you money, you want to come with good science, with a good program that has regulatory uh, probability of success and, and the, the team that is executing is one that you can trust. And the last thing I, I, I would say is this is care. You know, one of, one of the main reasons why drugs fail to be approved is because of poor quality in the product. So, so a, an aspect that I don't focus on a lot because I'm a physician and I care about patients and I don't care about chemistry as much uh, is can you make the drug and can you make it cleanly? You know, so, so, so those are the questions that you usually have to answer when you're trying to go for funding.
0: Yeah. And I think to cover the 7,000 plus rare diseases, as Amy had mentioned, there needs to be a combination of those approaches. Obviously the patient community uh, funding research and drug development for rare diseases uh, is certainly something that I think will be sustainable in the future. Thinking about the future, uh, I wanted to have a discussion about technology more generally and how it impacts the rare disease drug development space. And for Amy, I'm thinking about technology in the sense of um, the ever-growing number of social interactions that we have each day and the ease of dissemination of information um, that social media has brought about in the last um, 10 to 15 years, um, how that impacts the connectivity of rare disease patients and um, dissemination of information about patient advocacy and uh, clinical trials. And uh, for Alejandro, um, focusing more on the science, uh, th- there's been um, a boon of you know, artificial intelligence and drug development uh, that has garnered a lot of interest. Um, so so from those two aspects, from uh, connecting patients and uh, from artificial intelligence and its role in drug development, how will technology shape the future of rare disease? We could start with Amy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So technology um, has drastically changed the rare disease community as far as patients getting together. When we talked, you know, prior to social media, prior to Google, um, prior to Zoom calls, uh, it and, or rarely, rarely happened. And you feel isolated. You feel alone. You're not, um, you know, dr- moving that needle forward as fast as it is now. So I came into this space 15 years ago, and patient organizations were not as um, educated, um, for lack of a better word, savvy, um, and as um, organized as, as I believe that they are, that they were, you know, back then. There were some pretty big organizations, and there were some pretty big um you know, groups that were, that were doing some great things in the rare disease community, but there wasn't as many of them. And now that they are learning and growing from each other, they're meeting, um, together. They're, um, developing consortiums. So they're, you know, similar disease groups are coming together to develop these, you know, small and massive consortiums to bring together. There's also, um, patient support groups that are collecting data. They're massively collecting patient data. Um, and of course, we talked about you know the patients are collecting their own data. so so and Facebook, believe it or not, you know, and we're kind of moving off Facebook a little bit, but Facebook is the from from my perspective, is the number one place place where patients are meeting each other and reaching out and recruiting and and, and not only you know in the United States but worldwide. Um, we're talking some disease communities that have 100 patients. They started with six and now they're up to 100 because of social media and because of being able to reach, um, you know, across the world, across boundaries to be able to, to, to get together. So, um, 100 percent, you know, these online communities, when they can get on and they have these, they can connect through Zoom. You have to be able to do that because you may not meet another rare disease patient physically in person ever. Um, But uh, so you have to have this online technology. But then now we're missing the, you know, the groups that are in the urban areas. They don't have access to technology. Um, they don't, um, you know, they're missing out. And I think that's something that the rare disease community is really talking about right now is how do you reach those patients when they don't have access to the technology that is. Bringing these communities together, so it's a it's a huge issue to tackle. And I'm I'm happy to say that as a whole industry and the patient community, um, we are all coming together to say how, how we how are we going to figure this out and how are we going to help these patients that um, that don't have access. Um, so it, it's it's a huge issue.
2: Put aside now the computers for a second and just think about what we can do in in medicine versus what we could do. Uh, 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 years, uh, just a few years ago. I mean, you mentioned that that you're working in the area of HIV. Uh, uh, I, I, I was director of the pediatric, the clinical program at, at UCSF for many years, and uh, uh, the pediatric HIV program, and, and HIV was the fourth leading cause of death in children in the early 90s. Uh, in the United States, now rarely ever a child dies of HIV in the United States. I mean, it, it's, it's the, the advances that have happened in therapeutics are incredible. The advances in diagnosis have changed drastically. For example, the diseases that we are treating now, primary mitochondrial myopathy used to be diagnosed with a muscle biopsy, which was Difficult to do and not very reliable and and expensive and painful. Nowadays, you know, you can send a, a, a sample of blood into the laboratory and you have a panel of the 400 most common mutations in PMM, in primary mitochondrial myopathy. You can do all mitochondrial DNA exploration. You know, you can diagnose these patients much, much easier now than than we could in the past. Now AI, you know, artificial intelligence is 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 a clearly entering into our space very rapidly. I recently talked to a company that wanted a little bit of advice on 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 path forward, and and what they what they're doing is they're doing AI to identify the compounds to move forward instead of. High throughput technology, and you know, it used to in high, in high throughput technology, you 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 could study thousands of of molecules very quickly and and come up with a, with a decent candidate. Now you can study millions, not thousands, of, of products just with artificial intelligence and move forward the the identification of of, of molecules that are. Less likely to have liver liver impact or, or or toxicity and more likely to engage in the receptor and you probably don't want a full engagement of the receptor you want you know a weak agonist instead of a full agonist because you want to limit toxicity you can design all of that in the computer and and it is remarkable that that this is being done so I anticipate that very soon. Even for the drugs that we know that are very successful now in the market, we will be able to optimize all of that therapy much, much more in the very near future. So, I mean, I think that the limiting factor we have, honestly, in drug development is our poor understanding of biology, even though, you know, there are thousands and thousands of papers published every day about, you know, biological processes. I think we're just scratching the surface of the iceberg in understanding of biology. And and as we wise up a little bit more in biology, uh, we will be able to do much better therapeutics.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate the future looking statements. Um, And and I think that we've only begun to realize the potential in the rare disease space to, again, cover a, a majority of the rare diseases that exist today. And uh, and it's a very heterogeneous mix. So I think all of the approaches that you all have mentioned uh, will will really contribute towards um, finding a cure for, for many of these conditions. So thank you both, Amy, for your, your insights on uh, patient advocacy and the patient journey and, and how we can bridge patient communities. I, I think one thing that I really enjoyed um, that I hadn't really considered previously was uh, how how you mentioned that patient communities uh, affected by different diseases can actually come together to share resources and share insights and um, how, how to, you know, build a, a better patient advocacy group and, and raise funding. And and Alejandro, I think uh, Reneo's approach to drug development is particularly unique uh, in the rare drug disease space. Um, so, uh, I really appreciate both of you coming on and and joining the panel. Our pleasure.
1: Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.